how many of you read Herodotus? Good. Uh, a lot that goes on here. Uh, have any of you read the novel Tristram Shandy by Lawrence Sterno? You should when you get the chance. It's part of your eventual reading. What's notable about that book, besides being kind of a funny novel, is that it contains a digression in praise of digressions, which is a great idea. And Herodotus, God knows, has digression after digression, because everything reminds him of something else. And it's put together like those Russian matryoshka dolls, and there's a story inside a story inside a story, and then he goes back out and says, sorry, I just got carried away. <laughs> so he's kind of a chatty guy, and uh, he's been everywhere, or at least what the Greeks would have thought of as everywhere. He's been to Egypt, he's been to Persia, Mesopotamia, Scythia, Thrace, Italy, Libya, Egypt. I mean, he's been around the world as far as the Greeks are concerned. And uh, he always does his best to find out the customs and the uh, ways of life characteristic of the people he meets. Right. What do you think? Yeah. He is funny, I have to admit, yeah. But I don't know if anybody else got this impression, but as I was reading, I kind of imagined him as you. like the pet moose. <laughs> right. right. I mean, that's a digression, because it's just too good a story for me not to tell you, despite the fact that it has nothing to do with the lecture I'm doing. But look, you are, look, you are better off now that you know about Tycho Brahe's moose. Don't kid yourself. You know, this is, all education is beneficial. Plato is right. And look, you've gone through all these years not knowing about the dead moose. <laughs> no, that's how you know you, you had a successful party. All your friends are asleep <laughs> under the table and there's dead moose at the foot of the stairs. <laughs> yeah, it was a good evening. Yeah. Um, after reading the Greek Socratics, I noticed a lot of like the influence of sophistry. Mm. Um, Where'd you see that? What what cases? Well, just when he would kind of be like when he would tell you different accounts of what happened, and then um, and then sometimes he'd be like, oh, I don't, I don't know if this is this is true. I don't know. There's there's not one that comes to my mind, but there were a lot of times where. He would like still tell you all the events, but he's like, I don't think this is true. I believe this one, or like, but he kind of laid them all out for you, though. Okay. So he must like, have been a ferocious gossip. <laughs> I mean, he wants the inside story about everything. The problem is, he's surrounded by Greeks that are more than willing to give him the story, regardless of whether it's true or not. All right. Count on the Greeks to think up some good fable that puts their city or themselves in a good light why you get two or three different accounts, most of which he thinks are lies, but he can't help but tell you anyway. Yeah. I was fascinated by the first line where he says, uh, here he presents his research, so that human events do not fade with time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a, sort of a, a deal of introspection that's going on there that's new, at the very least. Mm -hmm. Okay, first things first. Unlike Homer, he doesn't start by invoking the muses, although an, a later Alexandrian editor probably put in the chapter headings that you have, and each of the nine chapter headings was named after one of the muses. So the first chapter is Clio, the muse of history. 
All right, so he's, they're in the background, but they're not up front the way they are in Homer. All right, uh, Herodotus is a kind of bridge between the old Homeric outlook and the new scientific and sophistical outlook. All right, there are elements of both in Herodotus. Uh, ancient critics often described Herodotus as Homereticos, most Homeric. Okay, and there is. I mean, a considerable continuity with Homer. First of all, the main themes of the book, war and travel. That's really Homeric. Also, the speeches are very much, they're not like the kind of set speeches that sophists teach. They're earnest, um, beautiful speeches. He makes them up, of course, but he doesn't think that's a problem. And. Uh, he puts the suitable words into people's mouths at the time that they have to say it, whether they're right or whether they're being mistaken. What else? Uh, I was going to say, uh, I was surprised at the facts of like how, um, how they talked about politics and how advanced it was, because we're learning about stuff like that in America so right now, and I didn't think it would stretch all the way back to here. They're talking about oligarchies or whether we should rule like with a monarchy or one person rules. They're talking about like how this can create factions and all that stuff. And I was like, oh, wow, I thought that just started with the beginning. No, it's actually really ancient. It goes back yeah. to the Greeks. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Greeks are unusual in world history because they were one of the peoples that was most interested in uh, political experimentation. All right? If you look at the history of China or the history of India, there's pretty much no interest in you know, the Chinese get an imperial structure of government run by some very smart guys early on, and since it's such a big, sprawling uh, thing to administer, they obviously hit upon the right solution early on, and uh, they never bother to experiment with things like oligarchy or democracy, any of that jazz. There's nothing like that. Also, Greek political thinking is organized around the polis, Right? But that's unique. It's, even though Aristotle thinks you absolutely have to have it for a good government. In fact, all over the world, there are all kinds of governments, most of which are not places. So uh, instead of being organized around the polis, Indian or Chinese political thinking is organized around the family. I think of Confucius. Right? Filial piety counts for a lot. All right, what else? supposed to think something after reading the book. Yes? Well, um, kind of going back to the God, or like, yeah, the um, Homeric transition, is that I feel like you read it and like, he doesn't really, I don't think he really believes in God, but more of he still tells us about all customs that the peoples um, had. There was one, <coughs> someone like dressed up as a God, mm -hmm. um, I think it was like... Smeritus. Oh, no, 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 it's um, That's the guy pretending to be king. Uh, he was like, I don't know if he's terrible, Okay, but remember that lying and uh, deception didn't start with the sophists. Think of the uh, uh, the Trojan horse. All right. Think of the whole uh, uh, career of Odysseus. All right. So he already knows how to tell lies. But uh, Herodotus is something like an amphibian. He's got part one foot in Homer and that earlier science 1.0, and 
And he's got another foot in the Greek Enlightenment, which is science 2.0, plus the sophists and the other social science fallout from this revolution. Yeah? It seems to me like, like you were just saying, he's in between this understanding of morality built by the gods and what we get later as morality is ruled by the order of things of nature. Um, and I, I remember specifically the daughter who discovered Sumerus with Algiers. Yeah. Uh, I think she was the one who said, you know, people will tell the truth and lie for the same reasons, for the same ends, and just use different means. <coughs> And I was thinking about that, and you kind of see that theme throughout, that they don't really particularly care about doing good for the state. Okay. Well, philosophy hasn't been invented yet. That's something we're thinking about. I mean that literally and seriously. Right. So um, the only game in town is myths and the sophists. Both of them have serious difficulties attached to them. Yeah. Wouldn't the sophists be considered like, wouldn't that be philosophy because they're thinking of questions. You could call it that. I don't know if they all if they called it that though. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that what they did was pursue wisdom. I don't think they loved wisdom as much as so much as they loved money because they taught for pay. Yeah. Well, I meant more the pre-Socratics, I guess. Then pre-Socratics, yeah. Um, they were what might be called natural philosophers, mm -hmm. but uh, there's a tension between natural philosophy, this new discipline and uh, the inherited mythological tradition that we see in Homer, all right? Think about one of, my, one of the f most famous and one of my favorite passages here is in book seven when Xerxes is trying to cross the Hellespont, makes that bridge, and the bridge breaks up, so he has the Hell Hellespont beaten ferociously. <laughs> Though, this is science 1.0. In other words, Xerxes is not stupid, nor is he mad. If you are working on a conception of nature that tells you that the things around you have spirits inside them and can like you or dislike you, they can be benevolent or malevolent, well then, a malevolent body of water needs a good beating. And then throw some, uh, some shackles in there and say, now you're arrested. <laughs> All right, it sounds funny to us, but if you don't have an alternative theory of nature, that makes perfectly good sense. Think of the river Scamander overflowing because it's a partisan on the Trojan side. It's been with the Trojans for so long. It now is trying to flood the Greeks, and the Greeks get all pissed off. Science 1.0. On the other hand, there are certain elements here of the 2.0 Greek Enlightenment uh, ideas. First off, he seems very relaxed about the variety of traditions, customs, and religions, all right? In other words, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Sounds like Protagoras, man is the measure of all things. Or even better, in book three, where he says, uh, well, one of the, the uh, Persian kings, says, I wanna make a point to you, calls out the Greeks and the Indians. And remember, Persia was a great society, but it was, um, it was multicultural, unlike almost all the other societies prior to that. All right? Mesopotamia, for the most part, had one, one culture, and then when it got overwhelmed by horsemen from the north, then it had that culture, which mixed with the one that was already there. But the Persians used to cruise in. I mean, they took over Persia, but they also ended up taking over Mesopotamia and Egypt and Turkey, and they get to 
Thrace and Macedonia, which is in northern Greece, and they're looking to continue to expand. But the Persians were particularly relaxed about other people's religions. As a matter of fact, they're the ones who conquered the Babylonians in Mesopotamia, and they're the ones who decided to let the Israelites go free. Remember, the Babylon had, in 586 BC, Babylon takes over uh, Jerusalem, destroys it, destroys the temple, and brings the people back to slavery. All right. Well, um, in uh, the Chronicles, in see, uh, rather in the Book of Chronicles or in the historical books of the Old Testament, you'll see that the Jews have concluded that uh, Cyrus is in fact the hand of God releasing them from their bondage. He said, ah, you know, you messed with Yahweh, we stuck with him. Now you Babylonians have to pay. And now Cyrus comes in and then Yahweh tells Cyrus, let him go. And they do. Alright? So the Hebrews at this time are putting together a providential view of history. Right? Where it all has a direction and a point. It's not what we get with Herodotus. We get certain patterns emerging. But these patterns are connected with vices and virtues with which Herodotus is particularly concerned. All right. <coughs> yeah. betwixt and between. Again, that's why he's kind of an amphibian between science 1.0 and science 2.0. Um, in book 9, he explicitly says that he believes that the gods intervene in human affairs. But um, he doesn't organize his history around that idea. All right? On the other hand, if you tempt the gods, if you push the envelope, all right, um, you will come to naught. All right? Um, a lot of the stories of the great kings that we get here, Xerxes and Darius and Cambyses and the whole crowd of them, um, they are suitable for treatment in a tragedy. Tragedies are almost always pretty much the same story. All right? Some superior hero, you can't have an average guy, it's got to be the kind of person that you're going to get in an epic, superior men. And then they go and they push the envelope, hubris, which is a foolish thing to do, but men do it again and again and again. And the result of that hubris is Moira, which is fate. It seems in the background there's a conception of fate here. Now, fate may be influenced by, I don't know, the geography of your country or the kind of customs that your country has, but fate in the long run is inexorable. Right? And that's the kind of thing we're going to see in tragedy when we get to it. It's worth noticing that uh, the earliest of the, of the famous tragedians, Aeschylus, fought at Marathon. And he actually, and about 18 years later, he wrote a play called The Persians, which is about the victory at Marathon. His brother, on the other hand, um, was recorded by Herodotus fighting at Marathon and getting his hand cut off and getting killed. 
but he's, uh, Herod, what Herodotus is, is, is giving glory to the uh, family of Aeschylus. All right. Why? Because there's a big element of tragedy here. We're seeing it in real life before it gets transformed into art. Ate comes first, madness. And God knows crazy kings are a big feature of this. All right. When they go crazy, they make bad judgments. And when they make bad judgments, there's always someone around to say, you know, that's a bad judgment. <laughs> and then he has to actively ignore them, say, no, 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 I know much better than you. All right. And that's hubris, arrogance. And what does it lead to? Moira, fate. And what you get is nemesis. Something is going to destroy you. Most likely you, in a way. So un, uh, it, it, there's a lot in this book of what do they call in tennis unforced errors. Mistakes that didn't have to be made, just that the king got it into his head that he really was God. One of the most terrifying and bizarre things in the world must have been the fact that there were people in the ancient world, particularly the ones who are running Science 1.0, for whom becoming immortal is a real live possibility. They believe that's, that can be done. I mean, the megalomania of that is completely astonishing, but look at somebody like Xerxes or Darius. Right? Um, the power has gone to their head. And when they claim to be gods, I don't know if they're telling the truth or not, but they may well be. Imagine trying to reason somebody who thinks that he's a god out of going too far. Hubris. All right. Pride goeth before a fall. So there are lots of unforced errors which kings make on account of their exalted self-conception. There's an analog of that in Chinese history. My man, Qin Shi Huang Ti, they named the country after him. That's what China's named after. And he literally intended to become immortal. And because Taoist alchemists had told him that there was such a thing as the elixir of immortality, he sent soldiers in every direction to find it. And if they came back and didn't have it, he killed them. And if they did, he said, well, that's great. You, know, you get a, a bonus. And then he you know, had his advisors or somebody cook this stuff up for him. Unfortunately, what, among the things they brought back was liquid mercury, which turns out to be poisonous. But he didn't know that then. So uh, Qin Shi Huang Ti literally and seriously intended to live forever, surrounded by people that were mere mortals, and he's drinking this stuff, and it's killing him, and it's also driving him insane because mercury affects the brain first. That's how, and I heard the term mad as a hatter. The reason why as a hatter is use mercury in making hats. And it would get in through their skin, and they would become crazy. Well, this guy's drinking it every morning, all right, with his orange juice. So he's knocking back the elixir of eternal life, and he's becoming crazier and crazier. And Chin Chi Wang Ti was remarkable for his cruelty. All right, and the number of people he killed. I mean, if you oppose him, he just annihilates you and your city, and he kills every living thing in your city, burns it down, and there's nothing there, and then he moves to the next one. He did this with all of China. He's the first guy to unify China. And you need a megalomaniac for a job like that. The problem is he was legitimately known. All right. Um, he was the guy who started the uh, uh, Great Wall of China, 
Now, talk about megalomaniacal ideas. He said, I want you to go out there and build me a wall. All right? It should be bigger than the wall you have around any city, and it should be about 3,000 miles long, if that's okay. <laughs> Some of the Mandarins didn't like the idea of being given a, a manual labor. So he had 400 of them brought out, and he had them dig holes, and then he buried them in them. He was just making a point. Again, if you're the only immortal among mere mortals, it's like stepping on ants. I mean, this guy desperately needs to have an opera written about him. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine this guy's just going completely off the chart. Right? He's the, he, Jinji Wenti is the kind of the Chinese analog of somebody like Alexander the Great that we'll see a little later on. Okay? You know, it's all ego all the time. Okay. Now, to be head of Persia means you own everything from Pakistan and even parts of Western India into, onto the steppes of Central Asia, above the Black Sea. That's where the Scythians are. And then you get to Asia Minor, which we call Turkey. They also took Mesopotamia, and they also took uh, Egypt, and they eventually took parts of Libya as well. So Persians are a big empire. They speak many languages and have many traditions. And pretty much the Persian rulers will let you do anything you want so long as you pay your tribute. All right, so you want to go rebuild the Jewish temple, knock yourself out, just pay it on the day that it's due. All right, so they're one of the first multicultural, multilinguistic empires. And these are very hard to put together, they can be very delicate. Because people's um, group identification may tend to split it apart. What else? What was the best thing that you read that you didn't believe? Yeah. The story with the fish, the um, the, the dolphin that takes him home. No, no. The when he, the one guy says that too much is going well in your life and you need to get rid of something, so he throws away his ring into the, the ocean and the fish swallows it up, and then he catches the fish, and, or they catch the fish and bring it to the, the his kingdom, and then lucky break. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, yeah. Uh, sounds kind of fishy to me, yeah. but it's the kind of story you'd want to put in if you heard it, yeah. The king showing his wife to Gyges. Yeah. Um, this is treating a queen as a hooker. And she refuses, and she, she's so enraged that she gets the king's servant, Gyges, to kill the king. Okay. Now we'll talk more about the ring of about Gyges when we get to the to the Republic, right? It's in book. It's early in book two, but um, that story is not unusual in world history. It's a kind of archetype. Uh, and if you know the book of Esther in the Old Testament, you know how that begins. Uh, Ahasuerus uh, uh, insists that he show his wife naked to uh, his friends, she refuses, and this is the beginning of uh, the collapse of that house. All right. So uh, again, this is kings not showing a proper respect for their own limitations. All right. The world has moral constraints. Violate those at your peril.
This is more associated with Homer in the 1.0 series than it is with the 2.0 series, which is more, much more chaotic. doesn't seem to have much in the way of moral organization. So what else? Come on, what else didn't you believe? I mean, the, the, the ring and the fish, that's a good one, yeah. I mean, I've heard that before. Yeah? The uh, vision, I guess, of uh, Cambyses regarding his own death and that sort of thing. Okay, yeah. Um, although he's influenced by science 2.0, there are a whole bunch of things that are derived from the 1.0 magical view of the world that show up here again and again. Cambyses has a vision. How about Xerxes' dreams before invading? These dreams are as pregnant with important information from the vast beyond as the dreams of Pharaoh that were, that were uh, interpreted by Joseph. Okay, so we're back in the age when dreams are uh, an email from the gods or whatever, yeah? I thought it was interesting that when Xerxes has those visions or dreams or whatever, and he tells, who's his advisor? Yes. Yeah. Um, and he tells him about it, and the guy's like, you know, I, I know that that's what it seems like, but rationally, you have dreams about things that you experience during the day, so that's kind of getting into the science 2.0. Mm -hmm. But then he's, I, it seems like he's still so influenced by the previous thought that he psyched himself out, and then he has his vision too. Uh -huh. You have to talk yourself up into completely wrecking your life. <laughs> All right? And again, that's the inevitable result of Hoover's. Right. One of the big themes of the book is the conflict between irrational slavery in the East and the Greek tradition of rational freedom. The first half of the book is an attempt to explain how Greece got to be so different from everybody else, different from the Egyptians, different from the Persians, different from the Scythians, And then the second half of the book is how the Persians wrecked their army and stopped their own expansion by picking on the wrong group of people, the Greeks. Now, they'd already wailed on the Greeks because, got to remember, that they have uh, populated the islands of Ionia, which is between Greece and Turkey, and also the Turkey coast as well. If you've ever been to that part of Turkey, that part of southwestern Turkey, it's absolutely beautiful. It's a wonderful place to go. Uh, and you would fight to hold on to this land because it's just so nice and perfect. The weather is wonderful and it's very fertile. It's not like Greece at all. I mean, it's relatively well watered, nice place to be. That's where the, I mean, Troy was originally on the coast of Turkey, all right? So the Persians crushed the Greeks in Turkey and in the Ionian Islands. They say, let's mop it up and get the rest of them. Now, um, in every case, when Herodotus looks at a people, um, one of the first things he talks about is geography. Egypt, the gift of the Nile. Now, when Herodotus gets to Egypt, so maybe 500 or 480, no, not quite that old, uh, maybe 470 or so. Um, at that time, the pyramids are really old. I mean, they're astonishingly old to the Greeks who look at this and say, wow, that's amazing. 
Uh, there's a famous story that a Greek went to Egypt and bragged about the fact that uh, he could trace his lineage back to kings uh, six generations ago. The guy he was talking to in Egypt said, uh, I'm an Egyptian priest and I trace my lineage back 218 generations. Okay, there's old and then there's that. <laughs> All right. And Herodotus is impressed. I mean, when he says stuff like, you really have to see the pyramids to believe them. You won't believe what I'm telling you, but you should see these things, which in fact you should. All right. I mean, it is a pretty amazing thing to encounter. And he goes down or up the Nile all the way to Elephantine, which is at the border with Sudan. That's way back there. And he talks about the Egyptian gods and the Egyptian customs and the Egyptian people. And uh, he says, quite correctly, that Egypt is the gift of the Nile. Right? It's organized around that one river, which is true. If you ever go to Egypt, it's well worth doing, uh, particularly if you go down to uh, Thebes, where they have the Valley of the Kings. That's actually completely amazing. I mean, it would blow you away the stuff that's there. But um, you'll also notice that once you get three to five miles away from the Nile, all right, the environment is like Mars in the sense that it's all sand and rock. There's not a bush. There's not a tree. There's not a blade of grass. They don't have bugs. They don't have lizards. They don't have snakes. They don't have birds. They don't have jack. In other words, it's a completely sterile environment. Also, what you think of as being sand is not what they mean by sand in Libya. Um, the sand at the beach is coarse, and you can actually pick out the grains. Uh, the sand in the Sahara Desert has been there so long, has moved around so long, that it's as fine, it's much finer than the beach sand you encounter, you've encountered. Uh, have you ever seen a, something like cigar ash after you break it up, how fine that is? That's what the, the desert is like there. So when that turns into a sandstorm, you really can asphyxiate. There's no doubt about it. It's not like a, you know, a blowing group, bunch of sand at the beach. It's very different from that. So um, the Nile is what Egypt is all about. What, are, what is Scythia about? What should we know about the Scythians besides the fact that they smoke cannabis? You remember that passage where they say, you know, they threw these bushes into a fire and they all get drunk? It's pretty clear what's going on there. All right. What else? What are, the, what are the Scythians like? What? Okay, they're barbarians. So they're Eastern. They're uncivilized. They're nomadic horsemen. All right. And they're unconquerable. The Persians chased them <clears throat> around the Black Sea and then up to the north of the Black Sea. The problem is that the, Ru that the Russian steppes, or the Ukrainian steppes there, are like a, an ocean of grass. And you can't catch these guys. All right? They can take off and drop back a little bit further out. This is the strategy that the Russians are going to adopt throughout most of their history, actually. Catch me if you can. I have a lot of room to retreat to. All right? Um, also remember, and this is very important, all right, um, there's a downside to these big Persian armies, and the downside is logistics. In other words, if you just delay, if you hold them off, they go through tons and tons of food and water every day. I mean, at some points, 
Uh, Herodotus claims the Persian army is 5 million. Well, okay, don't take any of the numbers literally. But it might have been 100 or 150,000. Now you stop and think about how difficult it's going to be to provide them with food and water. Your supply train has to be very extensive and largely unguarded. So if they make a move around and cut off your supplies, you're cooked. Right? So that's the problem that, that he doesn't discuss, but that's clearly going on there. The Persians are kind of muscle-bound because their army's too big to stay in the field for very long. Okay. What else? That's all you noticed, Terry. Yes, okay. Um, these are women, mostly mythical women, um, who serve in the beginning of book one as a reason for the war. Now, these women almost certainly did not exist, but they were abducted and raped, and of course, that is not an acceptable uh, thing to do in the 1.0 series. That's uh, a dishonor. That's a disgrace. You have to make war over that. So, he's he traces the origins of the Persian-Greek War to this conflict between East and West with captive women who were raped. And this outrage makes the East uh, enraged by the West and vice versa. Okay? So again, it's a really dumb reason to have a war, but what he's looking for is something that can be a violation of honor. Okay, because particularly at the beginning, we're still living in largely in that Homeric world. Yeah. Um, I guess in book three, when uh, Darius becomes king, like how he comes about kings through the horse, and like I not guess like you could that. see that as that not being real. But maybe. Um, it's a lucky break. I mean, but it actually could have happened, though. You don't yeah. know. I mean, that's the thing with Herodotus. Um, when we get to Thucydides, we're never going to say, well, it could have happened. You're going to say, yeah, it probably happened if Thucydides wrote it down. Herodotus, on the other hand, is, how can I put it, more flexible. He's more interested in telling a fun story. I mean, Thucydides says, look, I'm going to stick with the facts. You're not going to like them, but I'm going to tell you the facts. Herodotus says, well, I wouldn't want to tell you stories you don't like. <laughs> and besides, since I've been everywhere in the world, the number of stories I've heard is really amazing. What about those people with feet like goats? <laughs> what about those giant ants the size of dogs that eat camels? <laughs> yeah, I've got to like it. All right. uh, there's all kinds of stuff he's heard about. Um, now, scholars have later tried to tidy that up by saying that maybe these were marmots. Mistaking marmots for ants is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> um, ever since the ancient world, uh, there's been quite a bit of controversy about how literally to take Herodotus. Right? Uh, Cicero called him the father of history. Plutarch called him the father of lies. <laughs> he was called Philo Barbaros, lover of barbarians. <laughs> Why? I think because he was very even-handed with them. In other words, if you look at the beginning of the book, he says why he's writing this down. He says, look, I don't want I've, seen, I've heard and seen some glorious deeds and some amazing things. I want to make sure those don't get lost. And I want to talk about the great deeds of the Greeks and of the barbarians. 
Right? So he's got even-handed. There are some of the barbarians that are really capable men. All right? Others are just crazy or beside themselves with hubris. But he wants to talk about great deeds, not just of one side. Again, this goes back to the Homeric tradition. Remember, you can't have an epic in which one side completely outmatches the other. In other words, you couldn't have uh, the Iliad have a fight between Homer, or rather between Achilles and Achilles' grandma. And if Achilles kills grandma, there's no glory in that. Right? Because you're killing your grandmother. What you need is a worthy opponent, right? which means he has to kill Hector, because Hector is somebody worth matching swords with. So the point then is this. Um, he's looking for equal opponents because if the Greeks overcome feeble, foolish people, weak people, there's no glory in that. But he wants to offer glory to real heroes rather than the invented heroes of Homer. All right? So we're still looking for kudos. We still want glory. But he wants it real, although he has a very flexible uh, account of what counts as real and plausible. Maybe it is like me, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, I was just going back to Io. Because um, you talked about, like, the like, women would not have been abducted if they had not been compliant and all that says. That's um, But is Io in this story, this, is she the one that gets carried off by Zeus as a bull? Yeah, I believe so. Okay, in other words, all of those early ladies are women who are abducted in literally an outrage. You know, this is outside of law, this is personal, and now her male relatives have to make war on whoever took them. And of course, the male relatives are going to be related to a whole bunch of other guys by treaty and by friendship. So we're going to bring a whole bunch of Greeks and a whole bunch of Persians to mass over this. So uh, he's trying, in a way, to harken back to Helen of Troy as the source of the Iliad. All right. Except that he wants this to be real, and that, you know, he wants re realism. He also wants a good story, right? And sometimes those things are at odds. Right. Yeah. So there's a line um, regarding that, which is um, abducting abducting young women, in their opinion, is in, is not indeed a lawful act, but it is stupid after the event to make a fuss about avenging it. Yeah. Is that sarcasm? No, it's just women. No. Um, they are viewed as chattel. Think about the status of women in the Iliad. I mean, yeah, you don't want to take it from you because you don't want to be disrespected if you're Achilles. But the reason why you want the girl back if you're Achilles is not because you're in love with her. You hardly know who she is. What you want, you want her back because it's a marker of status. Now, if it's gone, is it really worth going to the other side of the world and spending some years looking for vengeance to get back a woman that you don't particularly like to begin with, wouldn't it be easier to just abduct somebody else's woman? Well, then you're fine. I mean, you know, you've been made whole. Let him worry about making war on somebody else. And so on down the line. So, no, I, there are times when I can't, I'm not 100% sure whether Herodotus is being serious or tongue-in-cheek. But here I think he's serious. In other words, why, why start a war over a woman? This is a really stupid reason to have a war. And there's some justice in that. In other words, 
Was the destruction of Troy and all those thousands of deaths worth it for Helen of Troy, who doesn't even get punished at the end? Yeah. Again, that's he's still living in the Homeric world. Yeah. Um, so is this kind of like saying that the whole Persian conquest started when like Cambyses asked um, Amasis for his daughter? So is that kind of like with the Helen? Yeah, that's the beginning. So of the whole beginning right. was because of um, Rome. And this is a rather slim thread to uh, base the Greek-Persian war on. Look, regardless of who married whom or whose daughter gets abducted or whatever's going on there, this is an expansionist empire. They didn't need a reason like the abduction of a woman to start a war. They wanted to expand and take over the world as they knew it. Problem is they get to Greece last because Greece is actually not all that interesting a place at this point. All right? If you want to go with really big populations and really large amounts of money, or, or better still, grain, you go to Egypt. Secondary would be Persia or be Mesopotamia. And then if you go east to India, who knows what will show up. But there are all kinds, in other words, uh, the court of the Persian king could have as many as, representatives for as many as 40 different countries that they had conquered. So we get all kinds of languages, all kinds of dress, all kinds of custom. All right? And they probably saw the Greeks as being these pitiful people who haven't really accomplished very much in life. And they think what would really be good for them is to be controlled by the Persians. I mean, we represent civilization. Right? Wherever we go, um, we release captives, and we make everybody kick into the you know, general fund of tribute. But apart from that, you know, let a hundred flowers bloom. You guys can keep on doing what you want, worshiping what you want, stealing each other's wives if you want. But they just want to be in control. So Persia is a new kind of empire. Right? It's not like the single ethnicity empires that we've had for many years in Greece or in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is a sequence, whereas in Egypt it pretty much is the same people for an extraordinarily long period of time. All right, who's going to present this? Yeah, go ahead. So, yeah, we were okay, well, do it the way you want. And then he's going to talk about a little more. 